This message comes from NPR sponsor, the Schizophrenia and Psychosis Action Alliance, shattering barriers to treatment, survival, and recovery. People with schizophrenia can recover and thrive. More at WeCanThrive.org. This is The Pulse, stories about the people and places at the heart of health and science. I'm Mike and Scott. In the 1990s, Dylan Evans was studying robotics, artificial intelligence, and emotions at the London College of Economics when a colleague suggested Dylan should read the Unabomber Manifesto, the late Ted Kaczynski's argument that technology would lead to the demise of humans. Machines becoming so powerful that we become utterly dependent on them and we can't really switch them off anymore. And Dylan found himself drawn in. That actually really sort of got under my skin. Ted Kaczynski murdered three people who worked loosely in the field of technology. He injured 23 more with bombs he sent through the mail. Dylan was appalled by those actions, but still he saw a certain truth in Kaczynski's writings. There are certainly bits of that manifesto which are very well argued It got him thinking about his own research, about technology, artificial intelligence, and what it would all mean for humans and for civilization. This feeling stirred inside of him, but it didn't really surface again until years later. Dylan was traveling in Mexico. It was 2005, and he was visiting the ruins of the Mayan cities in Yucatan. I climbed to the top of one of the pyramids and I was looking out over this sort of sea of green, really, of the, of the jungle. And uh, I realised that, you know, that once would have been farmland before it was overgrown, feeding the population of thousands of people who lived in each of these cities, tens of thousands. It had all vanished, the land reclaimed by nature. It's a very melancholy feeling that many other visitors to that place have experienced because it, it brings home how fragile some of our human uh, settlements and civilizations are and how many civilizations have just uh, gone the way of, of, of the great Mayan civilization and how many civilizations have collapsed. And uh, I, I began to sort of wonder, well, if, you know, if, if this could happen to so many other civilizations in the past, why couldn't it happen to us? And if it did, what would be the threats that caused our civilization to collapse? Technology was on Dylan's mind as a destructive force, but also climate change and population growth. He wondered, what would happen if civilization collapsed, if our cities and towns erupted in chaos and disappeared? The questions wouldn't go away and became more pressing as time went on. Eventually, they led Dylan on a path to try to create a better society, a utopia in the Scottish Highlands. Utopias strive for an ideal, for some sense of perfection. But if you take the word literally, they are societies that don't exist. Utopia comes from the Greek word utopos, and it translates to no place. But the idea that we could create a better model for living together is seductive enough to have people keep trying. On this episode, the quest for utopia, why the idea is so appealing... And what happens when things go wrong?
To get started, let's hear more about Dylan Evans' quest to create a new society designed to flourish in the aftermath of a technology-induced disaster. Grant Hill takes it from here. After Dylan came home from Mexico, he remained obsessed with the thought that the end of our society was near. The idea that our civilization could cause the apparently solid edifice of our international order to crack and eventually collapse. Ever the academic, Dylan started researching and developed a timeline for how it would all go down. Here's what he came up with in broad strokes. Civilization is going to collapse within our lifetimes due to global warming and or some sort of energy crisis. When civilization collapses, billions of people will die, but some people will survive. It will be impossible to rebuild civilization as we know it. Those who survive will have to escape to the wild, form tribes, and learn survival skills, just as those who survived the Mayan collapse are believed to have done. This process is sometimes referred to as rewilding. Through rewilding, quality of life for survivors will actually improve compared to how it was before the crash. A new society could emerge from the ruins. A utopia. Throughout history, when people have conceived of a utopia or a future sort of perfect society, they've often seen it as coming about via the sweeping away of the old order, often through some kind of cataclysmic event. Dylan also believed this was possible, even likely. After collapse, survivors would have a rare chance to reconstruct society from the ground up, one unburdened by the flaws and preoccupations of the old world. But without rigorous research, prep work, data points, Dylan thought this opportunity would be squandered. I've met lots of people who've written about civilizational collapse, and many of them have just sat in their armchairs, so to speak, and, and written even nice kids' stories about it, where it's all sort of like, oh, we've got to go out and find our own, you know, twigs now to make a fire with. And it's almost like some kid's story where it's all acute. And um, that sort of approach is only possible if you don't actually try and get your hands dirty, because when you do, you know, you can't sort of take that romantic attitude towards it anymore. What would it really be like to build a new society? What would it take to make it work? Dylan was set on gathering actual data about this, so he came up with an experiment. He sketched out a plan, an 18-month simulation on a farm in the Scottish Highlands, where rotating volunteers would mimic life after the collapse of civilization. He called it the Utopia Experiment and started posting about this on his website, hoping to recruit volunteers. This is where a man named Agric came across the info. And I thought, oh, that's quite a good idea. After a decades-long career in data processing and business, Agric had come to the same conclusion as Dylan, that global collapse wasn't just inevitable, it was imminent. Around 2000, Agric left his old career, life, and even name behind. He got some land and got serious about growing his own food, preparing for life post-apocalypse. Then he stumbled on Dylan's experiment. The project was slated to run from the 1st of April 
2007 through to October 2008. Agric was interested. So I contacted Dylan with a string of questions and I got the impression after a couple of exchanges of emails that he really hasn't thought this through. That's because, honestly, Dylan hadn't. He was kind of making it up as he went along. I sort of, you know, became convinced that I could do it all on my own. He didn't need a university to be involved, or anybody, really, he thought. Not if he went all in. So that's what he did. He quit his job and sold his house to help fund this big new experiment. I think it made me fully committed to the project. It wasn't long before this plan attracted some media coverage. Soon, hundreds of applications from interested volunteers came rolling in. Obviously, you know, it does tend to attract more than <laughs> your fair share of a sort of eccentric and slightly uh, loony people, <laughs> not to put too fine a point on it. In July 2006, the time came for Dylan to travel to the site for his utopia experiment, the farm in the Scottish Highlands, to prep for the experiment that would officially begin the following spring. When I first got up to Scotland in July 2006, you know, I had a load of enthusiasm and energy that came with starting an experiment that I'd been preparing for for almost a year. Agric joined too to help plan for the crops. The site was about five acres, partly wooded, a burn running through it, a stream. There was an old stone barn with a corrugated iron roof that was just about habitable. I spent a happy three weeks there. Dylan shared his vision for Utopia. Even though I was the founder, I didn't want to come in with, you know, a blueprint for how it should be. I wanted to see what would evolve, what sort of structures and leadership and rules and norms and what sort of systems would evolve in that rather than sort of foisting my own ideas on it. But despite his overall bleak outlook on the state of the world, Dylan had just gotten into a new relationship. When she moved up to Scotland to join me, she decided she didn't want to actually live in this experiment. Uh, She had a a young child, so I don't blame her. His partner was living just a few miles away, staying in a cottage. Throughout the winter, Dylan stayed with her and continued to make preparations on the farm. Agric and others began to arrive once things started to thaw. They planned a big opening bash. We had a big kickoff on the 1st of April, and we invited people from the locality, put a few posters up, and we got about 30 interested people coming round and having chats with us and whatever. Spirits seemed high, the volunteers fresh and ready to work. There were a number of things that kept people really busy during April. Bread was baked almost daily. All volunteers helped plant crops, take care of the pigs. Everybody seemed to be getting along. Everyone but one recruit named Adam. The thing was that he had his God, and his God would tell him what to do. So, really, that God was just part of Adam. He really was um, a bit of a religious fruitcake. But for Dylan, this was all part of the experiment, a social observation, an emerging data point. Yeah, Adam was determined that the great spirit, as he called it, should be sort of the center of all our decision-making. But it's kind of funny how, you know, whenever there was a disagreement in the community, the great spirit always agreed with Adam. Tempers flared, but unlike in the movies, 
Adam wasn't killed or excommunicated. When other volunteers refused to abide by the Great Spirit, Adam simply left. Agric thought the farm was doing pretty well. People were sleeping in yurts, crops were growing, the pigs were getting fatter. The community was slowly weaning itself off modern comforts. For the most part, Utopia seemed to be working. It was humming along with a population of typically about eight throughout April. Now, two events occurred round about then. They were the first sign of Dylan's impending breakdown in retrospect. One day, there was a flood, a leaky pipe. Dylan tried to fix the issue and made it worse. You could see that he was sort of physically and mentally shattered, and he didn't really recover very well from it. Then a large order of firewood came in. Dylan was expecting nicely cut logs, fire ready. And what arrived was about 30 tree trunks, ranging in diameter from three feet to four feet. And he thought, well, how the f*** are we going to chop this up? Around this time, Dylan's new relationship was falling apart. I tried to balance things by sort of spending some time with her and spending some time in the community, uh, which probably was really bad for both the experiment and my relationship, because I wasn't fully present with either. In May, Agric left the farm. His rotation as a volunteer was up, and new people were scheduled to arrive. He says the experiment seemed to be going okay when he left. But really, Dylan was quietly spiraling. It wasn't just the flooding or the logs. He was bogged down in paperwork. The local government had begun asking about permitting. Meanwhile, the volunteers were getting restless waiting for the coming apocalypse and wary of outsiders. People just got really into the idea of the simulation. They dreamt up ways to protect Utopia from future marauders. You know, getting some dogs and making some, perhaps some pipe bombs or some some primitive uh, kind of explosive devices, IEDs and stuff that we could use. In one sense, it was good for the simulation. Another data point. In another... You could harm or kill uh, a, a real human being. Yeah, it gets scary. Agric wasn't scheduled to come back to Utopia for some months. But then in July, he got a panicked email from another participant. He said, look, this is falling apart. Dylan's falling apart. You need to get back here and get it back together. Agric dropped what he was doing and drove seven hours back to Utopia. I arrived and there were three of them there sitting around the table. Dylan with two other volunteers sitting in silence. Eating some not very appetizing looking roadkill soup. I looked at them and I thought, uh-oh. At that point, it became fairly clear that Dylan was in the throes of a bit of a breakdown. According to Dylan, his breakdown had begun way before this. In fact, things had started to unravel for him the night of Utopia's official kickoff. The one Agric thought was a big success after interested people from the local village came by to check out the experiment. Agric thought everybody had a good time. But for Dylan, that night was a huge disappointment. He had been certain countless people would show who would miss their chance to get in on Utopia. 
Dylan worried thousands might come, line up outside like Woodstock, that he would have to turn people away. But of course, that didn't happen. It was the opposite. Like, you know, four or five middle-aged locals, (laughs) even my otherwise invulnerable grandiosity had to admit, basically, this was not quite what I'd anticipated. That night broke Dylan. He saw the villagers gathered around the fire, looking at his experiment, looking at him. He had envisioned himself as a modern-day builder of Noah's Ark, a pragmatic planner and scientist working on behalf of humanity. But before him, there were barely enough people to fill a dinghy. I think that that produced a kind of existential crisis which shattered a lot of my um, unrealistic or almost illusional kind of thinking. He excused himself from the small group of onlookers, the volunteers, and climbed into his yurt. I can remember just trying to get away and, and literally hide and not be seen by, in this case, crawling under a blanket or something. He kept going with the experiment. He felt he really didn't have a choice. He had abandoned his entire life for this. Now his enthusiasm was gone. Doubt seeped in. Agric later found out that Dylan had begun to discourage future volunteers from coming to the farm. He basically stopped people coming to the project starting about the end of April, early May. So he actively said, no, no, don't come. It's off. The experiment continued with the original group of volunteers. And still, Dylan couldn't shake the feeling that he was making a terrible mistake. He had always been a contrarian. If everyone around me thinks X, then I will think Y. Utopia didn't change that. As people got into it, he wanted out. Surrounded by doomers like Agric and the other volunteers, Dylan began to see flaws in his logic. This all started as an attempt to de-romanticize the end of civilization, to be realistic. How did this become utopia? Once Agric returned to the farm, Dylan seemed to see that as a welcome cue to get out, to let Agric take over. With a little distance, Dylan began to realize that something else had been driving his vision for the end times his longing for disintegration. Dylan was in the throes of a depression. I had experienced a few episodes of depression before in my life, so that wasn't surprising. But And also, I wasn't taking antidepressants this time. Because, you know, in this post-apocalyptic world, there, there weren't any doctors and there weren't any antidepressants. So I thought, well, I'm in utopia. I don't need to take antidepressants. So by July... I was extremely depressed. I was uh, suicidal. And um, I did actually then go to the nearest doctor I could find. And this, <laughs> when I told the doctor, you know, my situation, they were like, this is above my pay grade. <laughs> you need to see a psychiatrist. And uh, so they got me a, an appointment with a psychiatrist at the local hospital. And I went into the psychiatric hospital and they decided that I was a suicide risk and uh, I should um, be detained for, for my own safety in a mental health facility. I was in hospital for a month. And then after I came out of hospital, I went back to the community to tell them that it was all over because I just thought, this is it. You know, um, and uh, they didn't want to, to go. So I left 
I said that this is not the utopia experiment anymore. This is not my baby anymore. Uh, this is, this, I guess, this is your baby now. He showed up and said, right, project's closed. You can all go home now. And I said, bye-bye, Dylan. And he just went off and started the next part of his life. Agric stayed on the farm with three others for the next year or so. After that, he bounced around in the Scottish Highlands, farming, working different jobs. When the Great Recession hit in 2008, he thought, this is it. The collapse is finally here. It's over. I was wrong. Uh, Things happened, and my premises were clearly wrong. But I'm not optimistic. As a species, we're probably Agric is 69 now and still thinks our civilization is bound for collapse. But he no longer sees himself as a part of whatever comes next. Now, if the metaphorical bombs drop, then the best place for me would probably be for underneath them. Agric harbors no hard feelings toward Dylan. They've spoken a few times since their days in Utopia. In a perfect world, nobody would make mistakes or have to admit that they were wrong. But in this world, however doomed it may be, it's something we all have in common, messing up and having to face our shortcomings. Admitting this out loud may be hard, asking for forgiveness even harder. But for Dylan, these are the first necessary steps toward a future that's just a little less dreadful. I feel that I impacted a bunch of people's lives in an irresponsible way and left a trail of wreckage behind me. I know that some of them have gone on to sort of make the best of that and some people have done very well and one or two of people from the experiment have written to me and thanked me for that. But I do feel guilty for treating people like mere lab rats, I guess. That story was reported by Grant Hill. We're talking about utopias, the quest to create a new and more perfect society. Coming up, a writer reflects on his childhood in a utopian community in India. Well, it was a very magical childhood. And it was partly a magical childhood because the territory itself, the the geography of the place, was very wide open. That's next on The Pulse. This message comes from NPR sponsor Dana-Farber Cancer Institute, one of the largest recipients of NIH funding. Dana-Farber scientists played a substantial role in developing more than half the cancer drugs approved by the FDA in the last five years, data through 2022. They've made one advanced cancer discovery after another for over 75 years. Dana-Farber Cancer Institute is changing lives everywhere. More at DanaFarber.org slash everywhere. Support for NPR and the following message come from the American Cancer Society. Dr. Alpa Patel leads a team that researches cancer risk factors, and she shares how her team makes an impact. 
we always do what we like to think of as actionable science. So the work that we do makes its way to things like nutrition and physical activity guidelines for cancer.org, where millions of people come each year to learn about how they can better prevent cancer. To learn more, go to cancer.org. This is my voice. It can tell you a lot about me, and I'm not changing it for anyone. In NPR's Black Stories, Black Truths, you'll find a collection of NPR episodes centered on Black experiences. Search NPR Black Stories, Black Truths wherever you get your podcasts. This is The Pulse. I'm Mike and Scott. We're talking about the quest for a better, more perfect society, Utopia. I mean, you know, technically, like a utopia is a place that doesn't exist, right? Akash Kapoor is a writer who grew up in a utopia of sorts. Well, it was a very magical childhood. And it was partly a magical childhood because the territory itself, the, the geography of the place was very wide open. So there was this kind of geography of utopia of like creating a new world, creating a new society. It was an abandoned sort of deserted plateau. The place is in South India. It's called Auraville, an intentional community Akash's parents moved to in the early 1970s. The vast expanse of the land seemed magical to Akash, but the appeal went beyond that. You know, as kids, you're, you can be skeptical in a way, but you also, you haven't seen much of the world, you're young, and so you, you believe a lot of the possibilities that are being talked about around you. And so I think it was a, it was a moment that was filled with, with hope that way. Akash has written a book about Auraville. It's called Better to Have Gone, Love, Death, and the Quest for Utopia. He also teaches a course about utopias as a visiting lecturer at Princeton University in New Jersey. Auraville was founded in the late 1960s as an offshoot of an ashram, a spiritual Indian community. It was led by an Indian sage named Sri Aurobindo. And then he had a spiritual partner, a French woman named Mira Alfasa, who's known as the mother. And after Sri Aurobindo's passing, she felt that his philosophy, which was broadly, I would characterize it as spiritual evolution, needed a kind of laboratory on earth where that could manifest. So they got the land together and started inviting people from around the world to come there. You know, and they came expecting a kind of futuristic city. Of course, what they found was this barren plateau and they had to build the world from scratch, kind of. And what were some of the spiritual goals of the community? What were the rules, the ambitions, the parameters? Yeah, I think, so there were a couple of things. One was the ideal of human unity, the idea that we create a world where people from different countries and, 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 and creeds can live together. Um, and, you know, today Oroville has, has people from like more than 50 countries living together there at various stages of harmony or disharmony. The other ideal, so this comes out of Aurobindo's philosophy, was this, this idea of spiritual evolution, the idea that humankind is not the final rung in the evolutionary ladder, we have not reached the final stage, and so the idea that through spiritual practice humans could will themselves to a higher being, and that this community would be a kind of laboratory for that. Akash left Auroville to go to school in the U.S. He traveled a lot, and he remained interested in the idea of utopias. When I was in, in college, I found myself weirdly in a circle of Eastern European friends and, and, and former Soviet Union-type friends. 
and and you know at a certain point it hit me that like part of what we had in common is that they had grown up weirdly in a very similar society to mine even though I had grown up in South India and then after college I actually got a travel grant to go and spend for almost a year in Eastern Europe I lived in Romania for most of the time this was right after the fall of communism but a lot of that stuff was still in the air and there was just there were so many similarities and there was so much overlap between so much of what I had seen weirdly in this small community in South India and what I was seeing and experiencing in Eastern Europe. How so? What was similar? Certainly, you know, at a, at a broad level, the kind of the gap between idealism and idealistic rhetoric on the one hand, and then reality and the sort of difficulty of manifesting idealism and everything that happens in that gap, the self-justifications, the hypocrisy, the lies, the propaganda, the personal frustrations. So that, you know, you could think of as kind of the psychological aspect of utopia uh, was very interesting to me. I also found there's a certain amount of skepticism or cynicism that people who have lived through these sort of struggling utopias automatically end up with. I mean, I self-identify as an incrementalist. And I think that's something that I find many people who have grown up in societies that were founded on sort of grand ambitions and who have lived through the inability of those ambitions to manifest find themselves very distrustful of grand programs for social or, or political change. So those were some of the similarities. Is the goal usually a better life for you and me in the now? On some level, utopias merge spiritual goals with earthly goals, and there's often a kind of heaven-on-earth type ambition involved. Many have a, a, a distinctly sort of spiritual or religious element. I don't think that that necessarily needs to happen. Again, if you think of communism, it was, you know, resolutely, and it was very materialist, right? It was resolutely anti-spiritual and anti-religion. But heaven on earth in the sense of, in a secular sense, like in the sense of attaining sort of like the impossible uh, on earth, certainly is a part of all utopian thought. You know, the quest for perfection is one way I think about it, is, is certainly part of the idealistic utopian impulse. Um, I think social engineering is a big part of it, which usually it's social engineering towards a stated sort of goal of perfection. But, you know, and this is often where, where utopias trip up, because then there's an idea that we know the end goal as opposed to like normal human society, which is sort of like improvised and organic and stumbles its way towards some undefined goal. And so there's a, there's a heavy emphasis on, on social engineering, which often ends up these utopias in, in sort of trouble. Do you see any commonalities among people who are drawn toward utopias and being part of them? Well, begin at, at the most obvious one. They tend to be very idealistic people. They tend to be people who are dissatisfied with the here and now and with the way society is. You know, they're people who, who see through the sort of fallacies and the imperfections of the current moment. And then less sort of pleasantly or less positively, you know, they, they not always, but they do tend to attract people who may have a slightly fanatic mindset, right? Because they're so, they're so convinced they have the truth and the right that they may start off with sort of noble impulses to, to make a better world, but they, they easily tip over into fanaticism. Akash ended up marrying a woman named Aurelise. She also grew up in Auroville, but this is a coincidence. They don't remember meeting as kids. 
Arlies had a terrible childhood in Oroville, and she came to the U.S. as a teenager after both of her parents died under mysterious circumstances. But Akash and Arlies still made the decision to return to the community to build a life there with their own children. They were living in New York City at the time, and they both missed India. The Iraq War had just started, and they felt completely disillusioned with American politics. And Akash said. There were other motivations as well. I think if you've sort of grown up in a world that aims at perfection and aims at difference, you have these dual perspectives on it. On the one hand, you've seen all the way it's all the ways it's fallen short, and 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 you know you you you've seen the hypocrisy of it and the lies of it. But there's a weird part of you that sort of lived the dream or drunk the Kool Aid and remains kind of attracted to it. Um, and you know, in the book, I say something like, "Children of utopias are like exiles." You. You're never home out in the world. You're always kind of longing for that original thing that you experienced or that you believed in when you were young, even when you know it no longer exists. And so I do think, looking back, that that was part of the reason we ended up back there. Do you or did you feel conflicted about raising children in this setting? You know, because I think children often, in utopias that go wrong. Children are really suffering the most because they didn't ask to be there. They didn't choose that life.、Uh, many have lost their lives in these settings. And then there's the element of, of like you said, of being this kind of lifelong seeker who is never home. So, is there a certain conflict around that now? Yeah, I absolutely agree with you that children are often the biggest victims of these kinds of communities. And there are many instances in my book, which readers and critics have noted, of what at best you would just call, you know, parental irresponsibility towards children. And I do think that's part of it. And I do think, as parents, we have to be very conscious that, of the, the choices we make in life, whether utopian or otherwise, shouldn't limit the choices that our children can later make. The way I see this is, as long as my kids are being exposed to the world and getting an education. That equips them to make choices down the line. I feel okay with it. Like I'm aware of of the complications of it. I would say the situation is better than an earlier generation or two in Oroville, where they shut down the schools in in the quest to, to sort of reinvent education. And there were many there were many kids who then were not equipped in a way to have choices to live in the world. And the community's evolved since then. It actually has very good schools now, and many many kids, like myself included, end up going on to you know very good educations or colleges. So I think it's important to make sure that you that you enable your your children with those tools. The Oroville they returned to was very different from the community they had left behind as teenagers. The transformation has been really dramatic. I grew up in a very barren kind of wasteland. It was it was basically a desert,、um, and you know one of one of the sort of major achievements of the community has actually been. Planting up that desert, it was probably at this stage. It's probably been the most successful reforestation project in India, a pioneer in, in India's environmental movement. And this was done by accident. This actually was not part of the original utopian blueprint. It was a kind of survival thing. People ended up on this land and had to sort of plant it and 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 redo it. And so, in some ways, those of us who were there early on feel like we've grown up with the trees. So the landscape has changed very dramatically that way. And then the other thing is just that the community itself has become more comfortable. I mean, you know, we have restaurants now, we have guest houses, we have things like none of which existed when when I was young. 
It's also become a major tourist attraction because of some of the things it's successfully built, because of its forest, because of some of its architecture. So, you know, on weekends and holidays, it's, it's actually quite crowded now. Ha. Huh. So people go there like others would go to Disneyland or something? You know, you said it. <laughs> it's like, <laughs> I'm a, a, I am a curmudgeon about these kinds of things. And, it, and, and so I, it, it's hard to, to talk about this because I, I recognize that it should not be a cut-off, isolated, gated community in, in many ways, that there's a lot of injustice in that, and, and it shouldn't be that. For me personally, one of my attractions to the place, especially as a writer, has always been the isolation and the ability to kind of unplug from the world um, but yes, people, there are sort of a lot of day trippers who come there to treat it as Disneyland. And also because really, honestly, it's developed a bit of a reputation for having a culinary scene because you have these people from all over the world who've opened up restaurants. And so you have Korean food and Israeli food and Italian food. And so people come for that, too, which in my conception was never really part of the utopia. But that's it's become this like sort of culinary utopia. Wow. Yeah. That's, that's <laughs> yeah. the next level. Uh, yeah. Thing. Well, places, one of the things, you know, you learn when, you, when you're in these places long enough is they evolve in really unpredictable ways. Um, and that's something that, that you see. What do you think is the future of Oroville? How do you see this community grow, change in the next 20 years? The, the days of Oroville being a kind of separate laboratory from the rest of the world and from the rest of India are over. And I think a big a big question is how will it sort of interact with the country? And, and there are ways that can go very positive. It, for example, a lot of the environmental or ecological work that's been done in Oroville, um, you know, is, is, is knowledge that would be very valuable given the kind of ongoing environmental calamity in India. So that would be a sort of like a, a way in which it could grow positively. And then there are, you know, there are more negative scenarios where it just gets kind of swamped by a tidal wave of development. It gets seen as a massive economic opportunity. Certainly, you know, there, there are sort of uh, real estate sharks that, that have their eyes on this place because it's all this, all this land that has become a beautiful sort of forested place. And you have people from the cities that want to build essentially country homes there and enjoy the restaurants. And then the place would lose its sort of coherence and you'd, you'd probably still have you know certain idealistic communities or people within the place but it would lose its coherence so I do think it's I think it's at an inflection point and I, I'm not really sure where it's going to go that's author and journalist Akash Kapoor his most recent book is better to have gone love death and the quest for utopia you're listening to the pulse I'm Mike and Scott you can find us wherever you get your podcasts Coming up, cities are often choked by traffic, the air quality is bad, there aren't enough green spaces. So wouldn't it be great to design a new one from scratch? They're really promoted as being kind of garden cities or, you know, these green, luxurious places. That's next on The Pulse. This message comes from NPR sponsor, Viore. Jump into a new perspective on performance apparel. 
Viore makes products that stand the test of time and hope to inspire others to live vibrant, healthy lives, empowering your best life in clothing that can be worn for just about any activity from running to yoga. Visit viore.com slash NPR to receive 20% off your first purchase and enjoy free shipping on any U.S. orders over $75. Discover the versatility of Viore clothing. Support for NPR and the following message come from Betterment, an automated investing and savings app. CEO Sarah Levy shares why Betterment believes cash can be a strategic choice. There are times when the market is volatile, when customers are a little nervous about investing. We came to understand that there was an opportunity to introduce cash as part of an investing strategy and to give back yields to the customer. Learn more about high-yield cash accounts at Betterment.com. Investing involves risk. Performance not guaranteed. Cash reserve offered through Betterment LLC and Betterment Securities. Betterment is not a bank. Last year, over 20,000 people joined the Body Electric study to change their sedentary, screen-filled lives. And guess what? We saw amazing effects. Now you can try NPR's Body Electric Challenge yourself. Listen to updated and new episodes wherever you get your podcasts. This is The Pulse. I'm Mike and Scott. We're talking about utopias. Building a better, more perfect place is often about the kind of rules or government a community will have. But sometimes the search for utopia is about the design of the place itself. Today, there's a new crop of planned cities that's springing up around the world in Malaysia, Saudi Arabia, and the United States. These cities try to attract residents with promotional videos that make big promises. For too long, humanity has existed within dysfunctional and polluted cities that ignore nature. Now, a revolution in civilization is taking place. Picture a city that's green with towering condos and oceanfront views. A city that's smart with cutting-edge technology built into its design and sustainable, almost entirely walkable. It's so much easier to get, you know, really creative designers to come up with a computer-generated model and a bunch of really, you know, seductive, intriguing images than it is to actually build it. Sarah Moser keeps track of these projects. She is a professor of urban geography at McGill University in Montreal, Canada. She's counted over 150 new or planned cities in more than 40 countries, and she's compiling data on many of them. Planned cities are not a new idea, of course. Many already exist around the world. But Sarah says these projects are different. Many of them are funded by private investors. New cities generally are run by CEOs, uh, not by democratically elected mayors or, you know, city councils. These are also being built in non-democratic countries. So <laughs> it's very easy to get these off the ground because of corruption, the ability to grab land, the ability to silence critics. This is sort of a, a key trend that I'm seeing. Talk a bit about some of the features that are in the brochure, so to speak, you know, because a lot of these cities, whether they exist yet or not, they need to attract people to live there. So what are some of the desirable features that they talk about? 
it's usually the exclusivity and the luxury features. Also the fact that they're really promoted as being kind of garden cities or you know, these green luxurious places. They're also being sold as smart. So they'll have, you know, smart technology throughout the city. And that's often to keep undesirable people out. And that has a whole other set of implications because who do you want to keep out? Do you want to keep out people who are different than you, different religions from you, different ethnic groups, different socioeconomic classes? And that's sort of a maybe disturbing trend that's emerging as well. One of the cities Sarah has researched is Putrajaya in Malaysia. It was built in the late 1990s as the new seat of the judicial and administrative branches of the government. Putrajaya, I think, is one of the most mature new city projects of this current generation of new cities. It's about 25 to 30 years old, so there's a critical mass of population. There's about 100,000 people living there. All the trees are mature now, so it's very lush, incredibly green. And this was meant to basically cut ties with the British colonial legacy of Kuala Lumpur, which was the economic and political heart of the country until Putrajaya. So, you know, it feels really different. They chose a very different design. It's trying to look like this is independent Malaysia. And this is kind of common in political capitals. They're looking for a new architectural idiom. They're looking for kind of a new identity. And so, unfortunately, in the case of Malaysia, it's become this very Islam-focused city that is sort of symbolically and physically excluding non-Muslim uh, citizens. And that includes ethnic Chinese Malaysians and ethnic, you know, Indian Malaysians. So it's sort of become this Muslim city. And there are also some rules that are prevalent there that would make other groups feel excluded. Yes, there are interesting rules about the sale of pork. You cannot sell pork in Putrajaya and you can't sell alcohol except for, you know, hotel bars are allowed to exist. But in stores, there are no liquor stores. There, there's no liquor sold in grocery stores or whatever. And so it's sort of been called informally a halal city. So, you know, Putrajaya is a really interesting example of exclusion, a city that's exclusionary by design. Mm -hmm. And it's kind of the mirror opposite of Forest City, which I also study. So this is a project that's being built by one of the top property developers in China on artificial land in the ocean. So it's being designed for Chinese nationals in Malaysia also. So there's no mosque, you know, being designed in the city. There are no Hindu temples. There are no churches. It's just for mainland Chinese. It's for 700,000 people, and it's a gated private city. Yeah, I was going to say some of these places sound like the kind of snowbird community you'd find in Florida, you know, where like your in-laws <laughs> moved to. But it's like a whole, it's a whole city. You bring up a good point because it is kind of like these communities, these gated communities, but on a super scale. And so what's disturbing about this is they, many of them have, like Forest City has private security only. And so it's kind of like a giant mall. You know, the mall cops can kick anyone out based on, you know, how they wear their pants or if they're wearing a hoodie or whatever, all these frivolous rules. That's the same with a private city. The private police can kick you out for any reason. So I had a graduate student who was visiting Forest City with her cousin and they're Arab. And, you know, it's for Chinese nationals. It's not for, you know, young Arab women. And they were sitting on the beach and secure, a security guard said, what are you doing here? And kicked them out. 
So that's really disturbing. In a city of 700,000, to be able to make these very biased rules is troubling. For these city projects to work, people have to move there. And when they don't come, things can deteriorate quickly. Sarah says that's happening with Forest City in Malaysia. This is kind of a disaster right now. I mean, the, the parent company, the property developer from China, Country Gardens, it's really on the brink of bankruptcy, like the restructuring debt. And the project is suffering. No one wants to buy there. It's sort of seen as a loser project. So I was just there last month, and it's a city, they were very ambitious in when they first announced the target for 700,000. There's like a couple hundred people that live there now. And so the experience being there is totally wild. Like there's a rat problem right now, so there's rat poison and rat traps everywhere. Uh, and then these wild coastal dogs that wander around mangroves and stuff in Malaysia, they're, they've entered the project and they're either eating the dead rats or they're eating the rat poison, but they're dying. And then the whole project is covered in crows. And the crows <laughs> are eating, I guess, the, the corpses. Uh, and so I was attacked by crows three times. They kind of dive bomb you because they're nesting everywhere. So they're very territorial. So this is like a kind of dystopian nightmare, right? <laughs> like, it, it, this is not a city for people. Like, they're, the crows outnumber the people there. Wow. Um, but also b basic maintenance is so bad. If there's only a couple hundred people, they're really fine, trying to find ways to cut corners and save money. And so Forest City shuts off all the lights at night. And so there's no street lighting at all. And so if you're on one end of the project, which is pretty big, it would take you an hour to walk across it or 45 minutes, you're walking with the flashlight on your phone. <laughs> so it feels really weird. I was looking at pictures of the plans, like <laughs> what it was supposed to look like earlier. And it's It's a really stunning design. It looks very lush. It looks tropical. It's kind of a little bit Lord of the Rings, a little bit Manhattan. I don't know. It's it's a very strange combination, but it looks absolutely beautiful. So it's a bummer to hear that it just didn't really work out. Well, I guess it's a bummer. I mean, I don't know if this is what the world needs. Like, it's not addressing the local housing shortage It's just a parking space for foreign capital. You know, over the years, I've been many times, and I always take the official guided tour. And one of the tour guides told me the city's designed for 700,000 people, but at any given time, it'll only be 30% inhabited because we just expect 70% will be empty as, you know, investment units. And I thought, well, they're designing not for people. They're in designing to be sort of safety deposits in the sky. <laughs> I'm not really rooting for that project, you know. But yeah, the promotional material images are beautiful and lush. And it is this kind of Manhattan covered in greenery um, right at sea level, which is another problem. Like we get seduced by these beautiful images that property developers create. And when we actually think critically, we think, is it a good idea to build a Manhattan at sea level in Malaysia? When I've asked people working there, you know, are you guys worried about climate change and rising sea levels? The answers are very naive that I get back. They say, oh, this, the ocean may be rising in other countries, but not in Malaysia. Mm. <laughs> you know, 
this is really sort of magical thinking, which shows they're not thinking long term about anything. They're just thinking about sort of short term gains. So on one hand, yes, it's a shame this project hasn't fulfilled its promise, but the promise wasn't great to begin with. Sarah Moser is a professor of urban geography at McGill University in Montreal, and she tracks planned city projects around the world. That's our show for this week. The Pulse is a production of WHYY in Philadelphia. You can find us wherever you get your podcasts. Our health and science reporters are Alan Yu, Liz Tung, and Grant Hill. Marcus Biddle is our health equity fellow. Alan Hinnich is our intern. Charlie Kyer is our engineer. And this week we had additional engineering from Tina Kalake. Our producers are Nicole Curry and Lindsay Lazarski. I'm Mike and Scott. Thank you for listening. Major funding for The Pulse is provided by a leadership gift from the Sutherland family. The Sutherlands support WHYY and its commitment to the production of programs that improve our quality of life. The Commonwealth Fund supports The Pulse and reporting on health equity. The Commonwealth Fund, affordable, quality health care for everyone. Behavioral health reporting on The Pulse is supported by the Thomas Scattergood Behavioral Health Foundation, an organization that is committed to thinking, doing, and supporting innovative approaches in integrated healthcare. WHYY's health and science reporting is supported by a generous grant from Public Health Management Corporation's Public Health Fund. PHMC gladly supports WHYY and its commitment to the production of services that improve our quality of life. This message comes from NPR sponsor Mint Mobile. From the gas pump to the grocery store, inflation is everywhere. So Mint Mobile is offering premium wireless starting at just $15 a month. To get your new phone plan for just $15, go to mintmobile.com slash switch. Support for NPR and the following message come from Rosetta Stone, the perfect app to achieve your language learning goals no matter how busy your schedule gets. It's designed to maximize study time with immersive 10-minute lessons and audio practice for your commute. Plus, tailor your learning plan for specific objectives like travel. Get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off and unlimited access to 25 language courses. Learn more at rosettastone.com NPR. It's a high-stakes election year, so it's not enough to just follow along. You need to understand what's happening so you are fully informed come November. Every weekday on the NPR Politics Podcast, our political reporters break down important stories and backstories from the campaign trail so you understand why it matters to you. Listen to the NPR Politics Podcast wherever you get your podcasts.